if we're honest with ourselves, we're not really quite as good as we often like to think we are, are we? It's easy for us to look at other people and condemn their lives, to to pick out the faults that people have. Perhaps it's the people on the television, the people in the media, the people um, who've got all the money in the world, the people who've got the power in government, the people who seem to be influencers in life. We can look at their greed or their hypocrisy or their selfishness or, or other ways in which we point, point out the flaws in other people's lives. But if we're honest with ourselves back when we look at our own lives, the same things that we point out as, as flaws in other people are the very same things that are present with us. Granted, we might not have as much money to be as selfish, or or we might not have as much power to be as greedy, and so on. But the the attitude of our heart is still quite the same. Children, you'll know from school, there'll there'll probably be children in your class who you know as the naughty ones, the the least well-behaved They're disobedient to the teacher, they're disruptive, they they make too much noise, they're harsh to other children in the class. Do you look down on them as the naughty ones? Well, what about your own life? When you're at home, for example, are you always respectful to your parents? Are you always kind to your brothers and sisters? The same flaws that you point out in other people, their same faults, are there even with you. And we like to think that we, we, have a, we have a system of morality. We know what is right and wrong. We have some standard by which we try and hold ourselves to. But the problem is, we don't even manage to keep to our own standards at times. Again, children, think of the times when you've wanted other children to share their toys with you. And you, you think, surely it's only fair that people should share what they have. He should share that with me so that I can play together with him. Now, that's all well and good. And and the Bible actually would agree with that statement. We we should share what we have. Be generous. But are you always generous with the things that you have? Do you always share with others? And adults, I'm sure you'll be able to follow that illustration through to see the way it works in your own lives. We're not always even able to keep to the standards that we set for ourselves let alone keep to God's standards there are many different ways in which we fail fall short do regretful and regrettable things in our lives and yet despite our failings which each and every one of us has in in different ways despite our failings we continue to try and cover them up we continue as though there's nothing really wrong We, we try and present this picture of ourselves as being really quite good and we do that in a number of different ways. So, so one way, for example, is we, we reserve our worst behaviour for when we're just at home, for the people who know us the closest. And we've got the energy to really put, put time and effort into making ourselves look good to people outside the home. Why do we do that? Well, because perhaps we consider it's okay for people in my family to know the worst about me because I also know the worst about them there's safety in both knowing the worst about each other perhaps another way we do this is by getting practiced at analyzing the faults in other people and talking and discussing the faults in other people especially those people that we don't really have a close connection to 
as I said, the people on TV or the news or the internet or wherever, and talking about their faults in order to try and distract attention from us and the flaws in our lives. Or perhaps when we're in church, we're happy to pray about the generalities of sin. We're happy to confess sin so long as it stays general and vague and uncertain. And so that people around us can't really guess what the issues are that we're struggling with. But we don't want to talk about specific issues or specific people or specific temptations. Because that would blow our cover. And people would see really how often and how far we fall short. I want to tell you this morning. God sees through your facade. God sees through that picture that you're trying to paint, that that presentation that you have towards other people of how good you really are. God sees every action. God sees every thought, every motive of your heart, and probably he knows your motives even better than you know yourself. It's easy to convince ourselves that when we do something that we might consider good, our reasons for it are good. God knows so often that our motives are selfish, even if the act might be a good thing in and of itself. Now, this is all a huge problem. In fact, the Bible would would picture it as our biggest problem, our main issue that we have to resolve. Because one day, each one of us is going to stand before God in judgment. On that day, we will have to give an account for every deed that we've done. We'll be held up against the standard to see how really we have performed, how good we really are. Only on that day, the day of God's judgment, the standard won't be the cultural standard, how people around you live, how presentable you are. The standard will be absolute goodness. The standard will be God himself and his law. Take these two sticks as an example. I could ask you which one of them is the straightest. And you might say, well, that's easy to say. This one is straightest, it goes straight up and down. This one's got the big curve at the top. And it started off well, but towards the end, it's gone all a funny way. Surely this one is the straightest. And, and in a similar way, we might compare ourselves to those around us and say, well, uh, look, I've got a few sticky out bits. But generally, if you look at my life, it's going in the right direction. I'm a good person. I'm doing what's right especially compared to other people. Look how crooked and wonky and twisted and distorted they are compared to me. But look what happens when you compare ourselves to a straight edge, to absolute goodness. Even from the very beginning, the stick veers away. And it's almost as if when we are compared to God's standard of righteousness rather than our own, Every action, every motive, every hour of our lives will be shown to have been a a constant veering away from God's standard, from absolute goodness, from what is truly good and right. And so on that day of judgment, we will have nowhere to hide. Everything will be laid bare. And so what's the solution? How do we fix that? How do we become good people, as it were? 
Well, Christianity gives us the answer to that question. And interestingly, it's not, as many people think, it's not to try harder. The answer is not to to, to try and bend ourselves back straight again. In fact, in order to become a Christian, you've got to do the very opposite of those things. My first point today is that Jesus knows our weakness. Jesus knows our failings. And so it's not going to be an act of hiding them but actually recognising and acknowledging them. In the verses that Felix read to us from Luke chapter 22, Jesus uh, so far has been with his disciples having a meal together in a a private room. And once they've finished the meal and Jesus had a, a small talk with them, he leaves the room and goes out to the Mount of Olives, verse 39. This is where Jesus is going to be arrested. Jesus has made it clear that he knows that is going to happen. And he knows that his arrest will eventually lead to his death. And so Jesus, knowing what's going to come, says to his disciples, verse 40, pray. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, what temptation is it that Jesus might be referring to here? I think the most, the most obvious temptation that he's referring to is the temptation for the disciples to stop following Jesus. The temptation for them to turn away from him, to, to run from him, to flee to become one of the crowd who mocks and jeers and rejects Jesus. You know, in chapter uh, in um, 2016, four years ago, when Leicester City won the Premier League, a quarter of a million people lined the streets of Leicester City. If you read the news reports, it'll say a quarter of a million fans lined the streets of Leicester City to, to wave in the footballers and, and to celebrate their victory. A quarter of a million people, 250,000 fans, they're called. Do you know how many people turn up to a Leicester City game each week? About 30,000. Just a bit more than 10% of that number that was out there. You know, it's easy to be a follower, a fan, when the times are good. It's much harder to keep following when the person you're following becomes public enemy number one. And so Jesus warns his disciples, pray that you will not leave me. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. In fact, he's already told Peter that that is exactly what will happen to him. Now, sometimes people read these verses and they they think that perhaps the disciples are simply unconcerned, that they're so apathetic, because what do the disciples do? Well, verse 45, when Jesus rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep. Asleep. Look, you disciples, do do you know what's about to happen? Why are you sleeping at this critical moment? But give them the due. They're not asleep through apathy. It's not because they're not bothered about what's happening. These disciples have left everything, left their businesses, left family. They have no one else to follow other than Jesus. They've given their all for several years following him. No, their their sleep is, is not because they're apathetic. Their sleep is, verse 45, because they are exhausted from sorrow. Despite their best efforts, despite their uh, their, their sorrow at what is about to happen, they're still not able to stay awake and pray that they will not fall into temptation. Now there's a picture here about our spiritual condition. Why is it that we so often fail? 
Why is it that we so often are unable to do what Jesus asks of us? Sometimes it's not because we lack the resolve. Sometimes it's, it's not because we don't want to do it or because we're apathetic about it. Sometimes it's because we have weak natures. And by that, I don't just mean that we get tired. I mean something much more fundamental than that. That our very nature, our heart, our being, right at the core of who we are, has begun opposed to God. Turned away from him, rejecting him. And so that plays out in the actions of our lives. Our actions are less about pleasing God than they are about pleasing ourselves. Because rather than having God as God, we've made ourselves gods, kings, lords of our own lives. And so it's no wonder then that our lives so often follow those paths that we claim to hate and condemn in other people. We can't help it, almost. Children, how long do you think you'd manage to go without ever being told off? Maybe a day, two days if you're lucky. A week, perhaps, if you're really well behaved or if your parents are pretty lax. But could you go on for the rest of your life? Even if you tried to do that, it, it, it just seems like it would be impossible for us because our natures are inclined to disobey, to fail, to fall short. Now, you might have had years, literally years, decades of practice at convincing other people, even in the church or in your family or in your neighbourhoods, that you are a good person, that you're someone worthwhile, someone to look up to and respect. But don't go on trying to convince God. God knows your weakness, just like Jesus knew the weakness of the disciples. God knows our nature. God knows your hearts. And becoming a Christian is not about making yourself acceptable to God. It's not about becoming good enough to earn his love. Being a Christian starts by realising your inability. Becoming a Christian starts by realising that you are unable, you're too weak to achieve the standard that God has set. But then secondly, today's passage shows us that where the disciples fail, Jesus succeeds. As you read through chapter 21 and chapter 22, you see like a growing separation of Jesus and his disciples. So at the end of chapter 21, you've got Jesus and the disciples and the crowds and they're all together. Jesus is teaching the crowds and, uh, and he's there every day in the temple courts. But then as you go into chapter 22... Jesus and his disciples sort of peel off. Jesus now wants to spend time alone with his disciples. They become a smaller group. Then you find out that of these disciples, Judas has already decided to betray and reject Jesus. And then Jesus goes on and t tells Peter, you also are about to deny that you even know me. And so by verse 39, you get Jesus going out to the Mount of Olives and his disciples are following him. The word picture, not strongly, but seems to suggest that rather than Jesus being the leader of a group here, he's, he's beginning to be more on, on his own. And the disciples are following almost at a distance. 
And then it's more explicit in verse um, uh, in verse 41. Jesus withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw from them. He's separate from the group. He's alone now. And in the moment of his anguish and difficulty, he's not helped by his disciples, by his friends there. He's helped by an angel from heaven. And then when he goes back to his disciples, what does he find? Well, they're asleep. Jesus becomes contrasted with the group of the disciples. You've got, he's, he's someone different to them. He is other. And then, as you read again, you notice that in every place that the, in every place that the disciples fail, Jesus succeeds. So Jesus tells the disciples to pray. What do they do? They end up falling asleep. But what does Jesus do? Jesus prays. Jesus, um, or you note it in the verses that the sorrow of the disciples led to their exhaustion. But what happened to Jesus? His anguish, verse 44, caused him to pray more earnestly. His anguish didn't lead to exhaustion, it prayed to more earnest prayer. And then when you get the arrest in verse 47 onwards, the disciples forget all of Jesus' teaching for the past three years and immediately just just have the gut instinct to react and defend. And Peter pulls out his sword and begins fighting. But what does Jesus do? He stops it. He heals. He forgives. He goes gently. This passage becomes just one more piece in the in the picture that Luke has been painting, painting for us in his gospel. Jesus's life is exemplary. At every point, at every turn, at every word, at every motive, Jesus is exemplary. In fact, more than just exemplary, is more than just an example. Jesus is perfect obedience. You find that Jesus is that straight edge, that definition of God's goodness. And so when in verse 42, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. You get the sense that this is not the first time that Jesus has prayed that prayer. In fact, that prayer has been, you could say, the motto of Jesus's life. Every hour, every day, every moment of his life and ministry, he has been doing not his own will, but the will of his father in heaven. He has been perfectly obedient and so that leads us then to this prayer, the real, the real crux of this passage, if you'll excuse the pun. Jesus prays for God's will to be done. Jesus prays for the thing that he's been doing for all of his life. So why is it then that this prayer seems to cause him such anguish? Children, perhaps you can have a think about that. You, you've read the passage with us. Why is it? That Jesus is so upset here in the garden as he prays. Why is he sweating like drops of blood? Why is he upset? Why is he crying? Why does he have to have angels to come and help him? Why is he in anguish? Anguish is such a strong word that we we, we don't use it in co- in common day to day use. It's reserved for for poetry and and literature and and times of grief like this. Why is Jesus? So upset about doing God's will. 
well, you might say, come on, Seth, the answer's obvious. Jesus is about to die. He's already told his disciples that. But then think again. Children, many of you will know the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, uh, how King Nebuchadnezzar had told everybody in his kingdom to bow down to his statue. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they they were worshippers of God. And they said, no, we're not going to bow down to your idol. And so Nebuchadnezzar brought them in and he was going to he was going to put them to death. Uh, and, he, and he had the furnace heated up seven times hotter than it normally would be heated. And he was about to throw these three men into the fire. And what do these three men do? They say, look, King Nebuchadnezzar, if he throws in there, God could save us. But even if he doesn't save us, then we're not going to bow down to your idol. We're going to keep serving God. They respond calmly, coolly, respectfully. They're not full of anguish and and distress and sorrow like Jesus seems to be here. And you could think of literally thousands of other examples of, of Christian martyrs who face death with gentleness and composure, calmness. So why is it that when Jesus faces death, he can't do the same thing? Jesus' death is entirely different to the, to the death that anyone else has ever faced, either before him or since. There's a clue in that prayer that Jesus makes. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. He's about to receive a cup from his father. It's an old word picture, a metaphor that Jesus is using that is picked up from the Old Testament. He's referring to judgment. God is about to judge Jesus. Ah, no problem, you might say. Remember, Jesus is the straight edge. Jesus is absolute goodness in every aspect of his life. He's got nothing to fear from God's judgment. What's going to happen to Jesus is that Jesus is going to be held accountable, not for his own sins, but for the sins of all of his people. Jesus is about to take our failings upon himself. All all of our crookedness, all all of our failings, all of our greed and pride and hypocrisy and jealousy and unbelief and hatred, Jesus is going to be punished for each and every one of them. That's what caused Jesus' anguish. That's what caused Jesus' sorrow because he who who forever has been the apple of God's eye is about to become the scum of the earth, the dog dirt under your foot, the worthless, rejected, sinful human being. And in the garden, he's, he's waiting for that moment to come. He's in that awkward in-between time when he knows exactly what's about to happen, but it's not started happening yet. You know, like that feeling you get when, you, when you're on a roller coaster and you're going up the hill and it's probably the most nervous part of the whole ride. You know what's going to happen, but you're not there yet. Or that moment when you sat in the doctor's waiting room you're about to go in and see the doctor or you're about to go in and see the dentist for example that moment just before you go on stage to do your performance at school that moment just before you go into the doctors uh, to, to your boss to do your performance review that moment just before uh, labor comes on you if, you if you're ready to give birth 
The apprehension is there. You know what is about to happen. But it's not started. And that's where Jesus is. He's come purposely to the Mount of Olives as usual. Why? So that Judas, who's gone off to gather the the, the guards and and the chief priests and, and the people to come and arrest him, would know exactly where to find him. Jesus is waiting for his arrest. He sat in that waiting room. And if Jesus wanted to flee this experience that he's about to face, it would be so easy for him. All he'd have to do was descend that mountain, run off into the Judean countryside, find somewhere else to hide and wait until it all settled down. He could escape so easily. He knows what's about to come. And yet he doesn't. He stays put. And he prays, Father, your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. He chooses to stay. Out of devotion to God. And out of love for his people. In the garden, Jesus willingly commits himself to suffering for us. He prepares himself to take our sin, our feelings, our flaws on his head. When your conscience reminds you of the ways that you have failed, done wrong, broken God's law, hurt the people around you, hurt yourself, When you get those moments of clarity to see just how crooked you really are. Your conscience, in a sense, is preparing you for that day of judgment. When you will one day face God. On that day, you'll not just have to answer for one or two things that you can remember here and now. You'll have to answer for every deed. What will be your answer? How will you answer God on that day? How will you escape God's justice? The message of Christianity is that for those who belong to Jesus, God's justice has already been satisfied because our failings have been placed on Jesus's head. And even though it cost him more, far more than we are ever able to to know or experience or or even imagine. Jesus submitted to it willingly. Purposefully. Out of devotion to God and out of love for you and me. The hardest thing about becoming a Christian is this first step of recognising your own failings. Do you recognise where you've gone wrong? Do you recognise your sin, your, your disobedience to God, the ways you've hurt yourself and others and the world in which you live? Only until you recognise that, only until you see your own failings, will you ever be able to turn from them and to trust in Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. And if you are a Christian, then perhaps for us, the most persistent temptation that we face as Christians is for us to assume that we will somehow escape God's judgment because of our own goodness perhaps jesus paid for some of our sins but some of it's surely to do with me jesus wasn't in the garden just preparing to take some of your sins on himself jesus was preparing to take all of your failings 
on himself. And so I'm not accepted before God because of what I do or of my goodness or my performance. But on the performance of Jesus Christ on my behalf.